This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this week, we are going to one of the most fascinating and mysterious and magical countries on Earth. For centuries, it was closed off to the rest of the world. It's surrounded by huge Himalayan mountains on all sides. It is a real-life Shangri-La, a kind of mythical, fabled kingdom where happiness and spirituality are more important than money or economic development. Sound amazing? Yeah, it does. We are going to Bhutan. Are you ready? Yeah, me too. Let's go. Taking us there is one of the world's best travel writers, Emma Thompson. She writes for National Geographic, Lonely Planet, The Times. She's currently the British Guild of Travel Writers Travel Writer of the Year. And most importantly, she is just a lovely person to hang out with and a proper explorer who is happiest when connecting deeply and authentically with the cultures and communities she's visiting. And that's what this story is all about. Bhutan is still very new to tourism. Most people visit for a few days on a group tour. They do some hiking, they see some monasteries, and then they're off. Emma wanted to go deeper. So the story that she's going to tell is about staying with two local families well off the usual traveler's trail in order to get under the skin of Bhutanese culture, to see the real Bhutan and try and understand what is absolutely one of the most fascinating and unique countries on earth and she has lots of amazing adventures on the way too so if you like the story and you want to connect with emma please do her twitter is at emma s thompson and that's thompson t-h-o-m-s-o-n not to be confused with the equally lovely but not nearly as adventurous actress emma thompson who uses a p in there and uh, emma's instagram is emma thompson travel so please do check both of those out Also, very quickly, please remember, if you are enjoying the show, I'd love to connect with you on social media too, at Aaron M. Writer with a double A for Instagram and Twitter and at Armchair Explorer Podcast for Facebook. I post images and stories from my personal trips as a travel writer, as well as background content from the show and other fun, interactive travel stuff too. So I hope you like it. I'd also love it if you would join our community of explorers and adventurers and travel nuts. Sign up for the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. And please, if you can, remember to leave a review or share this show with a friend. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors, that love this amazing planet of ours and want to celebrate it by exploring every inch of it. If that sounds like you... You're in good company. Come and hang out. And remember, when you spread the word, you help that community and that message grow. But for now, sit back because this is a really beautiful and inspiring story. It's uplifting. It's filled with the peace and serenity of the mountains. And I hope it fills you with that peace and serenity too. For intrepid travellers, it's whispered with like such reverence because, I mean, let's face it, it's one of the few places left in the world sort of still relatively unchanged by tourism. Of course, that's, you know, thanks in large part to its sort of landlocked location. The high ranges of the Himalayas sort of act like these sort of castle walls protecting sort of a 
a fairy tale like kingdom. Locals call it Drukyul, which means land of the thunder dragon. And that sort of comes from the sort of roaring storms that swirl through the mountains. Um, you know, that people are ruled by a dragon king, which sounds like something straight out of, you know, Game of Thrones or something. Um, and, you know, they have things like the national animal, which is the, the takin, which is sort of this magical love child between a goat and an antelope. So before you've even got there, it's sort of this real anticipation. I know you're trying to imagine what the magical love child of a goat and an antelope would look like. I guess that would be an antelope or maybe a goatalope is probably better. But the Tekken is an actual real creature. I'd never heard of it before. And it is basically like a rock-hard goat, like a goat on steroids. But it's super chilled, of course, because everything in Bhutan is super chilled. And how boring is it, by the way, to have a president or a prime minister when you can have an actual dragon king? But Emma's right. Bhutan's geography and location is what has protected it through the centuries. It is surrounded on all sides by some of the highest peaks of the Himalayas, some of the highest mountains in the world. It's landlocked. It's absolutely remote and has been virtually impenetrable for much of its history. It has never been colonized, never been conquered. It's one of the only countries on earth that can say that. And because of that fact, it has remained culturally pure, culturally intact, which is what makes it so fascinating. And it's often kind of equated with this myth of Shangri-La or Shambhala. And the legend says, this is a real uh, myth and legend, by the way, that has been passed down through ancient Hindu and Buddhist texts for thousands of years. Um, And the story goes that there is a paradise hidden in the mountains, a a hidden kingdom, a land where only the pure of heart can live, a place where love and wisdom reigns and where they protect and guard that wisdom. So, as the prophecy goes, as the world becomes increasingly darkened and ignorant through the spread of materialism, they would have this wisdom safe in this hidden kingdom in the mountains, in this Shangri-La. It is a myth. Uh, It's symbolic, of course. But if there ever was a real-life Shambhala, a real-life Shangri-La, Bhutan would be it. I mean, it was completely closed to the outside world until 1974, um, when the media were invited for the first time ever to cover the new king's coronation. So there's there's a lot of secrecy around it. They only got their first roads in 1960. There was no TV until 1990. And I love this. The first broadcast that they ever uh, released was uh, the 1998 World Cup final. (laughs) France beat Brazil 3-0, if you're wondering. It was a devastating World Cup. Poor old Bex got sent off unfairly. England lost on penalties to Argentina harshly. Not for the first time. But that, my friends, is another story. This story is about happiness. Because one of the most amazing things to come out of Bhutan's centuries of isolation is that they have a completely different way of thinking about politics and economics and what's really important. And that is reflected in the fact that Bhutan is the only country in the world to measure its progress, not by gross national product, which is basically the total value of goods that a country produces each year, but by gross national happiness instead. Now, we all know sort of happiness is a slippery state of being. It's very sort of transient in nature. So, you know, how, how do you regulate something like that? Um, I mean, their way of doing it is, 
is quite practical in a sense. They have a, a 30 page questionnaire sort of covering very, like, I think nine domains of life, sort of from health and education to community and living standards. And they go around asking people sort of various questions like, how often do you meditate? How free do you feel to express your ideas? A lot of our, you know, political models are a bit sort of warped um, and fractured now. So uh, when I spoke to, to my guide about it, he described it as um, perhaps just being development with values. That's a good way to describe it because it recognises the human cost of that economic development, right? If your gross national product is extremely high, but everyone in your population is miserable, what's the point? But it's actually more than that too. Economics are secondary to well-being because according to official statements, get this, the rich are not always happy, but the happy generally consider themselves to be rich. Isn't that amazing? That's an official statement. In the West, we are often led to believe that we need to focus on material development because the more progress we have, the more wealth we acquire as a people, the more happy we're likely to be. And that makes sense to a point. If you don't have access to food or healthcare, it's pretty hard to be happy. But only to a point. Bhutan flips that on its head and says, rather than a people work for a country's economic development, the country works for the development of the joy of its people. Shangri-La. It's not perfect, of course. Bhutan has problems like every other country and human community on the planet. But as an idea, it is beautiful. And while we can't necessarily change the ideology of our entire country or the entire Western world, not overnight anyway, on a microcosm scale, we can maybe change the way we look at our own lives. We can maybe use this to inspire ourselves. What if we, as individuals, prioritized our own spiritual and mental development, our own joy and well-being over our material progress? What if we didn't buy into that Western idea that progress has to come before joy? What if we too had development with values? Of course, it's easier when you live in probably the most beautiful place on earth. You fly in past some of the most dramatic scenery uh, of any flight in the world. It's sort of literally like you're looking down into sort of the mouth of a, of a shark, you know, all these ragged mountains. And, um, and you'll pass uh, Chumolunga, which is, you know, the mother of mountains or Everest as we know her. And then you sort of, you know, fly in almost like an eagle into one of the most dangerous airports in the world. Um, I think I'm right in saying that I think only eight pilots in the world are qualified to do it. Um, so you're sort of like weaving between these wooded valleys and like tiers of rice fields, which glint like shards of shattered mirror and it's utterly breathtaking. What hit me first was oh, the sort of the iconic scene of prayer flags fluttering on the hillsides. Um, they have this lovely tradition of um, if someone passes away of um, hoisting a row of white flags um, um, and I actually saw one of those on landing. Perhaps not the most auspicious of <laughs> sights. <laughs> But it's really the, the freshness of the air that hits you first. And then that's followed very quickly um, by the scent of uh, frying chilies. Um, chilies are used all 
all the time in Bhutanese cooking. The hotter, the better. <laughs> they love them. So this is sort of really the, the perfume that sort of follows you during your travels. Yeah, maybe freshly hoisted funeral prayer flags isn't what you want to see fluttering in the wind as you come in to land at the world's most dangerous airport. But I love this description of the chili being the perfume that follows you on your travels through Bhutan and some travels she has coming up too. Because, as I said in the beginning, the usual way to see Bhutan is just to come in for a few days, see the main sites and get out. There's some incredible trekking there. There's incredible festivals. Uh, it has one of the greatest national parks in the world. I'll put up some details of all of this and some itinerary suggestions that you can check out on the episode page of the website. But even with those group tours, and they are amazing, um, there's still a barrier uh, between the traveler and the country, between the real culture and the real people. So Emma decided to see it in a completely new and different way. I mean, there's no better way to get under the skin of a place than homestays. And Bhutan are trialing this out more and more because um, they're trying to curb the migration of the youth from rural to urban areas because 56% of their population is under 30. So they're trying to find ways for these young people to make income but keep or maintain um, the sort of the rural areas. I'd be staying with two different families um, over a period of two weeks um, to really sort of experience what real life is like there. Bhutanese people are incredibly proud of their culture and their religion and the homestays are an extension of that. They are very family-orientated people so it's a natural pairing for them to invite people into their homes um, and as I say it, it allows um, families and uh, young couples to, to earn a living in the more rural areas so it's a win-win it's a situation. It's something you're starting to see a lot more all over the world and something we've talked about in a similar way on a previous episode too, Walking with the Animals. Uh, do check that episode out. Um, different story, but similar idea. It's about creating opportunity for people in rural villages who would otherwise be forced to leave for the city. And on the other side, it's about showing real travelers and real explorers the real Bhutan, the real land of the Thunder Dragon. So as soon as you leave the capital, you're straight away onto these single track mountain roads that sort of snake through the valleys. Um, and the first village uh, was called Mendelgrang. I mean, <laughs> village is, I mean, how you describe it, but essentially um, what it is is a collection of uh, market stalls along the main road, and I say that in sort of inverted commas, it's sort of the, the single track mountain road um, where all the farmers come to sell their uh, fruits and vegetables that they grow. And then um, each farmhouse is sort of perched on its own little hilltop. So you have these incredible sweeping views down the valley. And at the time I visited, there was just, you know, wild flowers everywhere. You know, the, the corn was high. Everything just feels really fertile and abundant. And I arrived um, at the home of my first uh, host, whose name was uh, Kinley, Kinley Choden. Um, she's 27 years old and she was still living with her parents, as is quite common. So as soon as you arrive, you sort of have chai proffered into your hands and, and meku, which are like these puffed rice crackers, almost like small poppadums that bit oval. And um, sort of your, it's, it's quite, it's um, tradition in Bhutan to refuse the first food you're offered as a sign of respect. But if, of course, once you've done that, you can sort of dip in and, and eat, 
to your heart's content. And then uh, they put on this big spread of um, you know the local dishes like emma dashi, which is uh, chili peppers with cheese. It's their national dish. Uh, it's delicious. Um, all sorts of you know uh, yak meat, things like that. Um, and then evening came and um, Kindley took me down into one of the outhouses and there was this massive um, vat sort of just bubbling and steaming away through the sort of uh, wooden slats of this roof. Um, and it hits you as soon as you go in. It's this real sort of potent uh, fermented rice wine. And uh, her mum was sort of Stir, stood over it, stirring it, sort of almost like a witch's cauldron, looking really happy with herself. And, and she sort of um, brought it later and sort of poured it into these thimble-sized cups. And I thought, oh gosh, this is going to, you know, strip my windpipe. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't. It was warm and really smooth. And you just get this lovely glow. You know when you have a really good whiskey or something and it just glows all the way down? Ara is the fermented rice wine of Bhutan, and it's a big part of the culture. It's served as a gesture of respect, of honour and hospitality. It's served as a welcome drink, a farewell drink, a drink with food, a drink after tea, a see-off drink, a sleep drink, a wake-up drink, a drink drink, and a drink for the road and a drink for good health. Man, I am starting to really love this country. But just as important as the booze is the clothes. And Emma had a treat in store. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think on my second day, um, Kinley and her mother sort of ushered me into the room that they'd set aside for me and 
you know, just to set the scene, it's like these pale green walls. There's all these ornate motifs on the wall, family photos. The bed is, you know, rock hard, but really beautifully ornately covered in sort of blanket. And they sort of usher me into this room where there's this enormous sort of uh, wooden wardrobe. And uh, her mother starts sort of scavenging through um, the shelves. And she she brings out um, these uh, garments and sort of without any... um, it was very sisterly and motherly. They sort of stripped me down to my underwear and then started weaving this skirt, which is it's about three metres of material around my waist, around, around. And then out comes this, you know, beautiful sort of crimson blouse and that's tucked into the skirt and then the the, um, the jacket on top. And uh, they looked pretty, pretty pleased with themselves once they'd finished with me. <laughs> They should be. I will put up a picture of Emma looking absolutely beautiful in her traditional Kira on the website. So do check that out, along with lots of other pictures from her trip and uh, other background stuff. But it's lucky she was looking the part because the next day, Kinley was taking her to visit Punakadzong, one of the most stunning of all of Bhutan's temples. It is one of the most famous sites in, uh, in Bhutan. Um, I think it dates from the 17th century. Um, it's where um, the royals get married. Um, they have ceremonies there. It's just these incredibly high white walls with red uh, sort of painted windows, um, sort of monks sort of glinting to and, and fro. Um, it's a very peaceful sort of setting and there's lots of um, blossom trees and it sits on the banks of a fast-flowing river. Um, it really sort of lives up to it sort of claims the most beautiful, I think. Everyone sort of is talking in hushed voices um, and you can wander through the various courtyards where there's sort of gnarly ancient trees growing, um, all of course surrounded within the high walls. And then you get towards the back um, and there are these exquisite um, statues of um, Buddhist masters, all the, the butter lamps are sort of flickering in the, in the shadows, um, incense sort of coiling up towards the ceiling, and people are, are praying, and it's, yeah, it's incredibly peaceful. The national religion of Bhutan is Buddhism. It's the only Mahayana Buddhist kingdom in the world, and those beliefs and those values infuse everything, from the clothing and festivals to their ideology itself, which fosters the development of individual well-being as well as the well-being of the natural world around them. By law, 60% of the country must be covered in forests to keep the ecosystem in balance, and they are the only carbon-negative country on Earth. They actually remove more CO2 from the atmosphere than they put in. Shangri-La. But as amazing as sites like Punakazong are to see, that's what everyone gets to see, right? What makes this adventure so special is the little things, the little moments that really illuminate what this mythical Himalayan kingdom is all about. On the third day, um, Kinlay took me down into the rice fields where the women um, were harvesting the rice seedlings. So we sort of joined them on our on our knees and were sort of gently 
extracting them from the soil and shaking off the dry soil off the roots and then you throw them down to the women on the next tier of rice terraces which have been flooded and they replant them so it's sort of this you know conveyor belt of of green rice seedlings being (laughs) thrown down the valley um which was you know a good experience and then as we were leaving um can they said oh let's pop in to see my neighbor and it was this very very simple home um, just crafted from uh, planks of wood on stilts um, and we sort of you know gave a shout out that we were um, could we drop in and, and uh, this very small elderly lady came out with really sort of sun wrinkled skin and grey hair and sort of this lovely saggy bosom sort of like propped up by her skirt and um, <laughs> She uh, invited us in to, um, which was her, her one-room wooden home that she shared with um, her husband and um, her sister, who was also the wife of her husband. Wait, what? Her sister is also her husband's wife? That's got to be awkward on Thanksgiving. But actually, polygamy is legal here and fairly commonplace. Kinley's father, Dorgie, bless his little soul, only has the one wife, the lovely sharing. But the previous king had four wives. It pays uh, to be the king. And we sat cross-legged on the floor and it was... It was incredibly homely in that there was, she obviously was still cooking off uh, firewood and the sort of floorboards were blackened from where the fire had been and her sleeping blankets or their sleeping blankets were rolled up in the corner and they'd obviously just roll them out in the evening um, to make to make space. It was, yeah, we just spent time chatting with her and joking about um how she'd met her husband and how her sister had then met her husband. and uh, I mean, it's lovely to see the sort of main sights and everything, but it's little moments like those that really stick with you. It's so true. Those are the moments that stick with you. And she had lots to come because where she was going next was even more remote and more magical for it. So then I journeyed even further into Western Bhutan, um, which tourism only reached six years ago. And it's called the Ha Valley. And up here, it's about you're at 2,700 metres. Um, and it's, you know, again, more prayer flags fluttering on the hillsides. Um, you're winding on these mountain roads. And then this is a very different experience because uh, Mama Chime, who was my host, um, she ran it with her mother, which was Grandma Noki. And um, she had a 10-year-old nephew called Jigme as well. Um, she had only been doing it a short time so um, this was an even more raw experience in that there was you know, a sleeping on a mattress on the floor um, there were no washing facilities um, but I actually I preferred that because what it allowed me to do was experience how they bathe which is using hot stone baths so what they'll do is they'll create sort of a bonfire of sorts in the, in the back garden and they'll put these large stones in until they're glowing uh, red hot and then drop them, you know, hissing and spitting into this, this wooden tub for me to have a, have a bath and then they scatter fresh herbs in the top which sort of, you know, perfumes you instead of using, say, soap or things like that. And then I was free to roam really. I, I took a walk up to the local monastery where um, they, 
you know, let me come in. And the initiate monks were sitting cross-legged on the floor making torma, which are those exquisitely detailed butter sculptures, very colourful with the floral designs. And so I watched them for a good hour. And um, and then as I was leaving, um, you know, there's dogs sort of roaming wild and one of them had puppies and he sort of, without saying, just plonked this newborn puppy in my in my hands and sort of issued me out the gates. So I think they probably just wanted to get rid of it. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, a monk comes along and drops a newborn puppy in your arms. I mean, come on. And she did bring it back. I don't know what poor old Mama Chimi must have thought of that, uh, who ended up adopting this little pooch, by the way. But the magic wasn't finished yet. She had two more really incredible experiences while she was there. The first was kind of hard, but it was also kind of amazing. In Bhutan, um, they follow Tibetan astrology and they believe in it so deeply that there's readings after the national news telling you when to move house, when to plant your crops, um, things like that. Um, And my translator happened to go to school with the principal of the Royal College of Astrology, which is uh, based in a 16th century temple um, north of the capital, Timpu. Um, it's called Pangrizampa Monastery. Um, it's closed to visitors, but because of his personal connection, um, the head monk agreed to see me. These monks study for nine years to learn sort of the ways of the stars and how to read um, people's horoscopes. Um, it's taken very seriously. And I arrived and you pass beneath uh, this low wooden door painted with snarling dragons and deer. Um, and you can hear monks chanting uh, in the distance. Again, it's very sort of low lit. And he took me into this uh, room and sat me in front of the head monk, um, cross-legged. And I gave him a birth date and he took out these sort of very old almanacs and was sort of consulting them. Um, and he said a few sort of few generic things. And then he said something that completely blew me away because he said, you had a miscarriage two months ago. And tears started running down my face because it was true and I hadn't told anyone. And for him to see that just goes to show the power of their skills. I mean, we can be quite cynical in the Western world, but I started believing a bit more after that moment. First, I just want to say thank you to Emma for her honesty in sharing that. I know that's not easy. And I know what she means. Like, look... I'm cynical about astrology. I know a lot of people are, probably because I'm a Cancer and I always wanted to be a Leo, which seemed way cooler. But mostly because it's kind of ridiculous, right? Like, how can it be true? How can the stars predict what's going to happen to an individual on any given day or month or year? Well, that might be true in the West, but in the land of the Thunder Dragon, in Shangri-La, who knows? Maybe anything is possible. There's this magic that's sort of wrapped up into their everyday life. Um, it's it's everywhere. And I mean, this is a land where, you know, there's no 
traffic lights where like every citizen has a birthday on New Year's Day because 40% of the country is illiterate so they don't want people to miss out on having a birthday so everybody turns a year older on New Year's Day and there's this wonderful tradition of uh, painting these you know hairy ejaculating penises on the outside of homes. What? I really didn't think she was about to say that. I mean, I was getting lured into this whole peaceful Zen magic stars thing. And then wham, hairy ejaculating penis. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was really shocked, to be honest, um, about how, uh, how do you say, anatomically correct they were. <laughs> I mean, what I... I sort of can't believe this. The classic elementary school back of the notebook doodle that you pass to your mate has been adopted and perfected as an art form in the most enlightened country on earth. How can that be? I mean, the images are supposed to ward off evil spirits, right? Now, I don't know what kind of evil spirits they're getting out there, but no bogeyman that I know is going to be scared off by that. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe that's where I've been going wrong all these years. Time to replace that dream catcher above my bed. Anyway, Emma's trip was almost done, but she had one stop left, and it was and is the most famous and beautiful and breathtaking sight in all of Bhutan. The Tiger's Nest Monastery, or Parotaksang, um, uh, it is in the same uh, area of western Bhutan. Um, and it's this famous sort of 17th century monastery that clings to the cliffs like a swallow's nest. Um, and it's so famous because uh, Guru Rinpoche, uh, who was an 8th century Buddhist master, um, this is a place where he landed on the back of a tiger. And he then decided to meditate in a cave there for three years, three months, three weeks, three days, and three hours. So it's, it has huge significance for um, the, the form of Buddhism that they follow there. So it's, it's worth the hike. Guru Rinpoche is also credited, by the way, with inspiring the Punaka song. Uh, he foretold its construction, and he was an amazing historical figure, widely credited with bringing Buddhism to Tibet and Bhutan, and then transforming those countries and indeed the whole world with his thoughts and inspiration in the process forever. The Tiger's Nest Monastery, this beautiful multi-tiered white stone building with golden roofs cascading down the ledge of a sheer cliff, is built in the same place as the cave in which he meditated. So it is absolutely worth the hike, but it is also not for the faint-hearted. So you start in amongst these sort of heavily wooded valleys um, and they, some people offer um, rides up on small ponies on the, on the lower sections but then it even gets too steep for the ponies so everyone gets onto foot and it's these tiny sort of mountain tracks sort of inching around the mountainside so you're going up and down and up and down and, and by the time uh, you get to the end, you're sort of having to, to wait to let people sort of inch past you because the cliff just falls away to complete sheer valley below. Um, it can be quite vertigo-inducing. but uh, And then the mists swirl up the valley, so she's all quite often shrouded in mist, and then you know the, the, the wind will suck it back down and you get these glimpses of the prayer flags and, and her, her high walls. 
there, I believe there's about 180 monks living there. Um, they're, they're still training there. Um, they very kindly um, let you see some of the most holy places inside the monastery, which is obviously the entrance to the cave where Guru Rinpoche meditated, um, various stones that are inscribed with ancient uh, symbols. It really maintains the sort of ancient air, butter lamps everywhere, lots of incense. It's, it's very evocative. And a little like Bhutan itself, hard to reach, a pilgrimage of a country sheltered from the world, protected, but filled with amazing magic and wonder. And when you visit, that peace and serenity becomes a part of you too. Because there's so much stillness there and people have an innate sense of something bigger than themselves um, and they look... work for themselves, they work for the collective, not in a communist style way, it's just a essentially a sense of community that has sort of essentially disappeared for many of us Um, and many believe that's why this sort of um, idea of gross national happiness thrives in Bhutan because they do think in this collective way and there's a, a reassuredness that comes from that, that People always have someone to count on, someone to talk to um, if they're going through hard times or whatever. And that brings a really deep-rooted sense of uh, peace and self-worth that I could see in the people. And that really struck with me and stood with me. And actually, when I came home, I did find myself spending or wanting to spend more time with family and to have better conversations um, because our lives are so busy now that we're just rushing from one thing to the next and you having conversations like that become it's an art form of sorts you know it takes practice and it takes sort of time and I think it's what we need more and so I did find myself taking that away from my travels there That is its magic, its gift, and it is the gift of Shambhala, the gift of Shangri-La, just as the legend says, a hidden kingdom untouched by outside influences, shrouded in mystery and magic, where mountains crowned in snow rise like a veil of stone all around, where happiness is more important than money, and development comes in support of the spirit, not at its expense. Thank you, Emma. Thank you for taking us on this beautiful journey. I hope some of that stillness and serenity that she describes so beautifully comes into your heart just as it has mine. And remember, if you enjoyed the episode, please connect with Emma at Emma S. Thompson on Twitter and at Emma Thompson Travel on Instagram. If you want to find out more about Bhutan, more background on this episode, see some of Emma's photos and get the insider tips on how to plan out your amazing Bhutan adventure, visit the episode page on the website armchair-explorer.com or reach out to me directly, Aaron at armchairexplorer.com. That's with a double A. I love helping people plan out their big adventures and you can book stuff directly from the site too, which helps to support the show. Finally, 
Thank you to you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to hit that five-star review on Apple or Spotify. Remember to share it around. It really does make a huge difference. We're building a community of explorers that want to celebrate the amazingness of our planet. And that is important because the more that you look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who you are. Dare to be truly alive.